Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital... This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow. My name is Rob Snow White, and yes, that's my real last name. This is episode 261 of my podcast. My podcast, if this is the first time you're hearing it, it's about fly fishing education. There's interviews, and then there's me talking, and then there's some travel stories. Well, this episode features Paul Dixon and some absolutely amazing fly fishing stories. I first met Paul when I began working at the Ocean Reef Club's Grand Slam Outfitters in December of 1999. I rarely saw Paul as he was one of the most in-demand guides at the shop. I was only able to briefly interact with him in the mornings when he was meeting clients or at the end of the day when he was dropping clients off at the docks. This is my opportunity to share Paul's story with you. We're going to hear stories about Paul pioneering flats fishing in Montauk to guiding throughout the Florida Keys. This episode is absolutely full of amazing stories and the amazing people that Paul has gotten to know throughout his years in fly fishing. I really hope you enjoy this episode. If you're either in Montauk in the summers or in the Keys in the winter, please be sure to look up Paul. And last episode, we were in cold and snowy Wyoming. We're going to go down to cold front Florida right now. Captain Paul Dixon, where are you today? I am sitting watching a cold front blow in at Sugarloaf Key right above Key West as we speak on my canal. I will be down there in a couple of months for spring break, so I'm going to have to ask you off-air some some questions. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to answer. Absolutely. All right, so how did, in, how did a West Coast kid become an East Coast fly fishing guide in the Northeast and way down in, in Florida slash a, a TV personality and article author? Oh, boy. 
Well, it's a long, securious uh, route. You know, I grew up in, in Newport Beach in California, and my family went way back in fishing. My grandparents were big fishermen. My, uh, uh, they had started in the 20s and 30s and belonged to the, you know, the Balboa Angling Club and all that. My dad and I spent, you know, all our weekends and everything growing up on the half-day boats going out of Davies Locker in Newport and this and that. And when I was in uh, high school, I worked at this tennis and ski shop down by the river jetty in Newport. And the guy ended up selling the ski shop. And he said, I bought a hunting and fishing camp in Idaho. Would you like to come work for me when you, you know, get out of high school? Or which I was graduating that year. I was, I think, 16. So, uh, so I said, of course, I was just, I loved, you know, fishing and, you know, I thought, wow, this is so cool for a summer job. So I drove out to Idaho and I worked on the Wild Rose Ranch uh, on Henry's Lake and I did everything, you know, but the interesting thing was, is that all these guys from the San Francisco Fly Fishing Casting Club would spend their, uh, their summers there. And guys like Gil Day and Ed Landry and, you know, and these are all the old timers that, uh, you know, fly fished in California and everything. And when I got there, they said, kid, we don't spin fish here. We fly fish. So they ended up teaching me to fly fish. And I just, you know, loved it. And the lake was filled with these huge cutthroat trout that literally at times on damselfly hatches and stuff like that would boil like the bluefish do, you know, in Montauk and stuff. But it was a great experience and everything. And then uh, I spent the summer up there when I got back and started, you know, looking at colleges and everything else in Southern California. You know, I was sort of addicted to the fly rod. So I tried it on the, you know, the beaches there and in, you know, Newport and Back Bay. Uh, you know, I would take it to Mexico, you know, in the early 70s. And, you know, I just sort of, you know, just tried to goof around and do the fly. It was tough to go uh, trout fishing in Southern California. The closest place was like I'd drive up to Mammoth or something like that or Owens Rivers, you know. But I did it in saltwater because I lived right on the beach. And then uh, after I got out of college and everything else, I had my business there. I sort of uh, worked for a real estate company, developing commercial real estate and such. And I uh, got invited to a thing later on in London and met this girl that was from um, the Hamptons. And so to make it short, we started a long distance relationship. Eventually, we got married. She got came out and got her master's at USC. I'd met her when she was going to the London School of Economics. And so we spent uh, a bunch of time in California. And eventually when we got married, she said, look, I'd really like to move back east. And by that time, I had gone back and forth. And her family lived on a place out in Long Island. And needless to say, once I saw it, I was blown away. Uh, being a California guy, I had always heard that, uh, you know, New York was, uh, you know, industrial wasteland and, and, you know, a decaying city. And, you know, there was just nothing there. But when I came out and saw the east end of Long Island, I was blown away how, you know, beautiful it was and, and uh, how wild, how you could go hunting or fishing right in your backyard. You know, in California, I'd have to drive hours to do anything, especially in Southern California. So, uh, so I was enthralled by it. And the thing that really, you know, piqued my interest being a fly fisherman was that this was the land of the striped bass. 
And, uh, you know, this was the early 80s, and unfortunately, the striped bass had disappeared. And so, uh, you know, eventually, we ended up moving back to to the Hamptons, or actually, I moved back to Connecticut first. And, uh, and I decided, I sold my company, I decided to pursue my passion, and I wanted to get into fly fishing. So I ended up going and working at Orbis, New York, uh, went in one day and said, I just want a part-time job because I want to, you know, find a lodge or I had visions of a salmon camp or I don't know, you know, so I was looking for anything. On my honeymoon, I'd gone to Nova Scotia and then uh, to Prince Edward Island to uh, salmon fish. And I thought, wow, we almost found a place up there. And I thought, man, this would be great to have a camp. But then again, my wife said, what are we going to do in the winter? So, uh, so anyway, so I ended up working for Orbis for like five years and I ran their fly fishing department. And in those years, it was going from, I don't know, the, the late eighties or whatever, uh, the striper, you know, there was a moratorium on it and it came, uh, came back. And by the time that I've, you know, decided actually Orvis is the one that said, why don't you do something in the Hamptons since you're always out there? And that's where my uh, wife's family had in the state there. And, and so we, uh, you know, thought, wow, that'd be pretty cool. And, and so, uh, I opened a store and I got my guide's license thinking that not so much about the guiding, but I just wanted to go fishing. And the only way I figured that my wife would let me go fishing <laughs> was if I could, you know, say, yeah, I got people that, you know, go and everything else. So I got that and things just sort of took off. You know, the uh, striper came back uh, in the 90s. I started the store in 93 and, uh, you know, I'd fished for years and never caught a striper, caught a bunch of bluefish, but they started coming back and we started seeing them in, you know, different areas. In those days, I was fishing a lot on the beaches. I'd see them down in Shinnecock and, you know, during the day. And, and uh, you know, so we started plying the beaches and, and lo and behold, they started coming back in force. And so by the time that I had my, you know, it was a, you know, very fortunate that my timing at the time with the, you know, with the, uh, with striped bass comeback was just about right. Because by the time we started this, the store in 1995, I think that the state declared that the striper was recovered and, and, uh, and it was, I mean, it was amazing what 10 year moratorium had done for the fish. And so we started guiding and, and one of the things that we did is, um, you know, the water was clear. The first time that I saw fish swimming around, I, I remember I was at Shinnecock and, and I started seeing these fish in, inside during the day. And, and uh, I had this old timer one day, I'm out there fly casting and he comes up behind me and he says, uh, are you seeing them? And I said, yeah, I, I actually am. And he said, you know, it's funny to see you out here because uh, I used to be the best gigger of bass back in the day. And I guess back in the 50s and 60s, they used to spear them at night. They would wear a headlamp and they'd see them in the water and they'd actually gig them. So uh, he said, I used to sit at this spot and gig stripers. And he said, but I was the best at it. I said, really? He said, yeah, because most guys did it at night. And I realized that they were here during the day and I'd sit out here in the day. So it's, you know, I find it very interesting that you're sitting out here with your fly rod. And that was a big, 
you know, clue that, the, you know, that the stripers, you know, ran the, the flats. And, you know, I had been told early on that they only were there at night, you know, and, and you had to fish 60 feet of water and that, that, you know, so we used to do a lot of fly fishing at night in the early days, you know, figuring that's the only time that they're there. But when the, when the fish came back, uh, you know, we realized that they didn't show on the surface like they did at night. You know, they wouldn't come up uh, so much and be hitting bait and everything else, but they were still, they'd come in with the tide and, you know, whatever the spot you're at, they'd be there. So we uh, ended up getting a flats gift, you know, myself and a couple other guys that were, you know, thinking the same thing. John Applenap, who was uh, actually, we'd become friends when my store first opened. His family owned Walker's K in the Bahamas. And we started fishing, you know, around Gardner's and Gardner's Bay and everything else. And and it basically all hell broke loose. It was just an unbelievable fishery and nobody had really seen it and done it. And so when we started, you know, writing and I got the magazines from working in New York, everybody I knew, you know, that, uh, you know, came out and did it. You know, a lot of them were the writers for the, uh, you know, everything, all the publications were based in New York City. I knew everybody from working at Orvis, so they came out and saw this stuff, and and it sort of, all of a sudden, they started writing about it, I started writing about it, Bob Popovics came and filmed it with me, and and then uh, we, uh, John Applenap and I, John invited Lefty and, and said, you got to come see this. We got Bob Popovics and Lefty and myself, and you know, I mean, Jose were heavy. It turned into a big flats party, and Lefty had never seen it before. And when they came out, he was so blown away that uh, he said, "Paul, we got to do this again. Can we come next year?" And so it turned into a you know annual event back in the uh, uh, early '90s and the 2000s, where Lefty and you know, it grew to a huge thing. Peter Matheson and Jimmy Buffett came, you know, John Cole, uh, he's dead now. He wrote the book of the tarpon and Jeffrey Cardenas, uh, from Key West and Jose Wahebi and, you know, Ed Javorowski and Nick Curcione. And the, you know, they, we would all gather at, uh, you know, out in the Montauk East Hampton and, and we'd have this big flats party. And that's sort of how it all began. And, and then uh, from there, the blitzes, and and there you have it. The rest is history. <laughs> so, One thing I need to see before I die is all of those stripers coming up to the surface. Yeah. Don't, yeah, don't have that down here on the Potomac. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of the things that uh, Montauk is famous for. And you know, I, can, I can remember the first day I ever saw it, you know, and and uh, and it was funny because I in those days I was using my flat skiff. I had a uh, uh, LT20 Hughes LT20, which was a, a big flat skiff, but it was better for out there because of the rougher waters and, you know, whatever. So anyway, uh, I had a guy that, you know, usually in September, early September, back by Gardner's Island, we would start seeing albacore and that's where we chased them. And, you know, that's where they were. And so I had this guy that wanted albacore. And so we ran around Gardner's and there was nothing. And I said, well, it's a nice day. Let's go over towards Fort Pond. They get in there sometimes. So we ran across to Fort Pond Bay and, and there was nothing in there. And I said, you know, it's so nice. Let's just go look at the point. And so I went out to the point and turned the corner and, you know, it was slick calm and inside Turtle Cove was about two acres of bass frothing with the albacore on the outside of it. 
And uh, I'll never forget it. You know, I sat there and said, holy, my God, look at this. And the guy I was with was like, oh, what are those things? And, uh, so anyway, so uh, those early days, I, you know, at least that, you know, the, like the first month that that was going on, I'd, I'd go and it would, I'd have maybe two or three surf casters, no boats. At those days, all the uh, boats went offshore, did the, you know, the rips. There was no real light tackle fishery. And so, uh, so anyway, so I'd run back to East Hampton where I kept my boat and then I'd run back out to Montauk and back and forth. And that went on. And finally I said, that's too much. I got to put my boat in Montauk and John Applenap, uh, whose father was a member over at, um, at the lake club in Montauk, you know, said you should just come out, you know, and, and leave it out at the lake club, you know? So there was the sea lion too, which is, you know, made famous by, uh, you know, Flip Pallet and the Walker's Cake Chronicles and everything and, and my boat. And that was it. In those days, Montauk was empty because the, uh, the striped bass had disappeared. Then there was no fishery. There was a lot of commercial boats and, you know, and there were some recreational anglers and stuff, but, you know, nobody really had caught on that the, the striper had come back and, and uh, I mean, they, they had, but not the inshore fishery. The surf casters did, you know, in those days, you know, the guys that hit the surf and, you know, the blitzes and stuff. And it turned to actually, you know, the more that my business grew, I ended up buying more boats and, and uh, you know, getting training more guides, everybody that, you know, came to my store and wanted to do, uh, you know, to work for us as, you know. Uh, ended up always wanting to be a guide. So they'd either buy a boat or, you know, or th those days I bought, I think, three more or whatever. And so we just started training guides and, and uh, you know, it sort of turned into what it is today where there's, you know, there's actually hundreds of boats. But it's interesting because you don't see, you know, now you see Montauk, you can't even get a slip, you know, and all the boat sails and the, you know, everything's filled and the striper, you know, was the comeback, I, you know, was the, the thing that generated all that. So it's interesting. What is it about Montauk that brings so much fish there? Well, I think that, you know, for the striper and for a lot of, you know, years and everything else, it's you see these ups and downs of different baits and stuff. Uh, the Manhattan, which was the bunker and everything else, had disappeared, you know, years back you know, from overfishing, you know, once again. So the thing that made the the blitzes of Montauk a, a real thing was the rain bait, which is the bay anchovy. And the bay anchovy was huge, huge masses of it would come out of the bays. And the same thing with the stripers. The stripers that are in the blitzes are the, uh, the fish that basically live inside the estuaries, the smaller fish. And when I say smaller, I'm saying usually in those days below 40 inches, you know, you'd have a lot of, a lot of fish that were, uh, you know, the, you know, legal size 20, 28, you know, but in those days, in the early days, the size level was 36 inches. And so, uh, so, but you rarely saw the big fish, you know, would sort of go and, you know, the, the deep rips and everything else, but anything below 40 inches, they'd live on the, you know, back in the estuaries and, and, you know, sort of along the coast and everything else, the, the 50 pounders and stuff, at least for us, I, I, I didn't have any on flats or, you know, in the blitzes occasionally, 
you know, you'd get the surf cast, you get a big nor'easter or something, and it would blow some big bait in, you get some big fish. But, you know, I would say 90% of the fish on the blitzes were basically the same fish that we would see on the flats and the, you know, the younger year classes, you know, like I said, in those days, it was, a you had more fish that were, you know, once they lowered the size limit from 36 to 28 inches, it sort of changed the dynamic, you know, so, uh, so anyway, so the rain bait is the main thing in Montauk, and every fish that migrated down the coast would stop there, and the rain bait would hold them because there was, you know, massive, massive schools of it that would surround the point, you know, on both the north and the south side and back into the bays. So it sticks so far out in the Atlantic, so everything that's coming out of Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, Rhode Island, everything else has to pass Montauk. And when it finds the bait that's so thick, it stays there. It's like, you know, it's like a, a rest stop on the highway between nowhere and nowhere that, you know, everything stopped. And so it built, you know, in the, the early days, it used to start sometimes in late August. And then it would go till November. And then you had another herring run after that. That's what, in those days, we would see the big fishes during the herring run. And that was usually around Thanksgiving into Christmas and December. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, the fish have changed their patterns. So it's, uh, but it's the bait that makes Montauk and how it, they have to pass it. You know, it's like it sticks so far out the Atlantic that everything up and down the coast has to go by that way. So if you hold a bunch of bait, it's the rest stop and they all come. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. When did you start migrating along with those fish down to the south to oh Key Largo? So how that happened was, and, and weirdly enough, it was just, I think in, I want to say in 96 or somewhere in there, John Applenap and his father and I, they, they were filming the Walker's K Chronicles and, and they wanted to, you know, they were sort of changing it up and everything. So, so they, they wanted to do a show. So we were actually, I, I think I was with Flip or something on, on the Sea Lion 2. Uh, I got a call from this guy at the Ocean Reef Club, Bruce Miller. And he, uh, he had guided down there for years. He was a photographer and he was starting an Orvis store at the Ocean Reef Club. And he said, look, I've heard so much about you and your clientele. I hear you've got this unbelievable clientele in the Northeast. And the Ocean Reef, the, you know, is a very interesting place because it was started as a fishing club way back in the, I want to say, 40s or whatever. And it was a family's fishing camp, you know, and they had a thousand acres up, you know, and sitting at the tip of Key Largo. And it turned into this, you know, fishing lodge, camp, whatever. And then eventually, you know, they sold places and it grew into this, you know, this club. And basically it's a club that sits in Biscayne National Park. So uh, I had been there in the early 70s with a friend of mine and his uncle lived there. And I thought, wow, look at this. So anyway, so this guy calls and says, hey, would you be interested in coming down here and guiding? 
And I'd been to the Keys a few times and loved it. And, you know, bone fishing was like a something that just blew my mind. I wanted to do more of it because it also was sight fishing. So I came down and met with uh, Bruce and, and, you know, I figured, well, it, it beats shovel and snow in the winter. And so I started working at the Ocean Reef and the, uh, you know, I would leave usually in December and come down uh, to Florida and I worked there for God, I don't know how many years, you know, and, and sort of learned the waters. At first, I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything, you know, but I, uh, I just started running around and, and um, you know, sort of try to figure it out. And that's, uh, you know, that's where I started down here. And then years later, I, you know, I sort of went on my own. I still, you know, have a lot of clients at the reef and everything, but I really wanted to see other stuff. You know, I, if you if you're at the Ocean Reef, I had Biscayne Bay down. It was unreal, but I kept my boat there. You know, and I wanted to fish the Everglades, and I wanted to do some stuff, and I wanted a trailer, and you know, so I ended up. Uh, I think after 15 years at the Ocean Reef, you know, started doing it on my own. So I moved to Key Largo, you know, or I stayed in Key Largo where I'd always been, but I started going a lot more time in the Everglades and Isla Morada and fishing. I was lucky enough when I first opened my store to meet a guy named Gordy Hill. And he was my first client, left a note on the floor, uh, on the door wanting fly time material. And Gordy is, is a very interesting guy because he, he grew up in Long Island and his, his grandfather and his father were big fly fishermen and Gordy is now 90 years old. And so like lefty, you know, if you look at lefty's books, he has Gordy pop Hill flies, which is Gordy's father, you know, that way back in the thirties and everything. So Gordy had fly fished and he was, uh, he actually lived, he was a doctor lived in, in Fort Lauderdale and he bought a, a house in the big pine key. in I think 1958 or something or 62, somewhere in there. So, we became friends and, and, uh, Gordy turned around and said, look at, you know, I've never, I, I'm blown away that there's stripers on the flats up here. And, and I, I want to come up and fish a few days with you each year and do this. It's, I'm, I'm so surprised. We never thought of it. We always did it at night. And so Gordy started joining me on the things with lefty and, you know, we invited him on all those early, you know, uh, trips. And he said, you know, you, you need to come down and fish with me in big pine and, and so that's how I got to, you know, the lower keys. I started fishing, you know, 20 something years ago with Gordy and John Applenap and Jeffrey Cardenas. And, and, uh, we'd go out to the Marquesa keys and, you know, just, uh, it was sort of a, a Renaissance time, at least for me. And so I was fortunate enough to learn a lot, you know, of the keys and, and this area from Gordy and he's still around. He's, he's unbelievable. He holds the world record all time for bonefish he's uh he's fished everywhere around the world and and he's just a, a fountain of information so you know i owe a lot to you know knowing the lower keys and and just uh, you know learning about this down here of all my time i spent with gordy are there a lot of similarities in the gear and tactics between montauk and then when you're either on the everglades side or the atlantic side in biscayne bay yeah, I, you know what? What I find really interesting, and what's really helped my fishing, you know, is that is that the uh, it's the crossover. 
And I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, when you're sight fishing fish, which is my favorite thing to do, I don't care what it is, you know, but, and that's why the striper was, you know, it's like, wow, these things, you could see these just like bonefish. That was, you know, it was a revelation to, to most people, you know. But it's it's about feeding the fish and the and by coming down here and then going back there, you I learned things here and and took stuff back there that you know I, I, as an example I had Gordy actually showed me this fly and he said this is my cobia fly I throw it at cobia when they're chasing rays and stuff down here and I thought man that looks like a little lobster type thing it was a splayed tail with you know sort of a the rusty orange with a squirrel hackle on it. And, and, uh, I thought, man, you know, but it had eyes and, you know, it led eyes. So it would go down and I thought, God, I bet the stripers would just love this. So I took it up North and they just crushed it, you know? And I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's really cool. And I used to, there was another fly. I caught a huge per my biggest permit when I was training Amanda Switzer to pull, you know, when she was coming to work for me. And, and, uh, I had this fly that that was just unbelievable caught permit caught bonefish did everything you know and so i took it up north and the same thing the stripers just crushed it and so uh one day i'm sitting in my boat and this guy's getting out of the boat after we'd just been out and it was a cloudy you know sort of shitty day and so we ended up uh you know, blind casting and going for blue fishing. So when we get in, he looks down at my sight fishing rod and, and he says, what's that fly? And I said, that's uh that's killer. That's, uh, he said, you know, I would never put that in because it looked like a, you know, a bonefish fly. And he, he said, I'd never use that on stripers. I said, dude, this thing, you see it in the water and it's just, I said, watch. I said, just, just look at this thing in the water. We're standing in my skiff next to all these docks at uh, the East Hampton point. And I take it and I take the leader. I said, let's see how the fly moves. And this 40 inch bass comes racing out from underneath the dock grabs the fly takes off and runs screaming through all the boats in the docks the guy is like oh my god do you, you got any more of those <laughs> so uh so a lot of the the uh you know the back and forth you know with uh you know techniques and flies and everything else it's been really interesting because how you can apply stuff to stripers that you can apply to bonefish. Here's another example. You know, the guys down here now uh, are using the double overhand strip, you know, because for tarpon and for the worm fly, it's if you want a worm fly to move right, uh, they, they motorboat through the water. It's not, you can't strip it like you do, like strip, you know, uh, one-handed. So the, the double overhanded strip, which is from the Northeast, is now the go-to tarpon, you know, strip down here. And I've got, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, Andy Mill wrote an article about it and a couple of guides got, you know, really bummed at him for giving away the double overhanded strip. And I, I said, Andy, I'm going to send you a video that I shot with Bob Popovics and I think 97 or something like that. And we're using a stripping basket, double overhand strip, because that's how Lance and Bobby fished the beaches up north. And we just used a rabbit strip fly and, and it worked, you know, it was deadly. My largest tarpon I ever landed on the, on the ocean was uh, with Lance Irwin, you how know, and was he that? was probably 160, 70 pounds. That's me. You know? 
yeah. So and Bobby filmed the whole thing, and it's a double overhand strip into a stripping basket. I said, Andy, go go shoot, you know, because it's only been within the last you know six seven years that this double overhand strip down here has become the go to, and it's because of the worm and how it swims, and then you know, and now it's deadly on tarpon. You know, it's deadly. But that's one of those things that came out of the Northeast where you start sharing stuff that, you know, that, uh, you know, the same thing You sort of it's it, that's sort of the fun of the sport. You know, to me, the the thing that I like most about the whole sport is is figuring it out. You know, as I tell my people, that's the you know, it's it's the fun is, at least for me as a guide, is is trying to figure out the fish, where he's going to be, what the tide, this, that, and everything else. But, you know, as I tell the people, the best thing you can learn is the uh, body language of the fish. And that's what the sight fishing has, has taught me a lot about how fish feed and how you, you know, when I'm blind casting, you know, every, I watch guys blind cast and they just strip, 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 you know, and it's like, you know, that uh, you need to change that because when you realize how fish react and, and when you can actually see it and how they, you know, their body language tells, you know, what it is and how they, you know, do things. It's like, I watch these guys strip up North and they'll just keep strip, 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 strip all the way back to the boat. And when you see it, I'll, I'll tell everybody, you have to pause, you know, and when I le- first learned to fly fish, you know, way back when in saltwater, guys, oh, you never pause anything because nothing, you know, if you're being chased, you don't stop. And it's, it's, it's not true. You know, the pause, especially on tarp and especially on bass, that pause is where they come up right behind it and look at it and inhale it. You know, a lot of times if you just keep stripping, they follow, follow, follow. And, and it's almost like a trout. They don't want to expend the energy, you know, until they get a chance. He's a trout's not going to go 40 feet across the river. He's going to take whatever bug, you know, comes through his window. You know, so a striper and a lot of fish, they got to feel they can get it. So it's the, that's the stuff that I like is what you can learn on the flat, seeing the fish and what, how you can apply it to other situations and fishing conditions where you can't see them. What are some other things you see out on the flats that person that works in an office all day would never see? Boy, um, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, just, you know, the thing, it's it's like when I first started, you know, doing the, the like bonefish and the stuff here, you know, I, I remember as a little kid and everything else and, and this, this family in Newport, you know, had this house, a beautiful, you know, new house, and everything, but they built this huge saltwater aquarium in it. And in those days, that was really unheard of. You know, it's, you'd have aquariums, but not saltwater ones. And I was enthralled by it from the, you know, the amoebas and sea fans and the, and the uh, tropical fish. And, you know, and once you see like the flats, even the flats up north and everything, you know, once you see what happens and you can really get a view, it's, you know, it's like a, uh, I was pulling up north recently and I'd see a sea robin fighting a crab. You know, and and it's just like, wow, look at that. That's pretty, you know, that's pretty cool. And down here, it's the same thing. You see it. It's such a visual experience, you know, and that's why I think people like the sight fishing. That's why the business up north has grown so much. I don't have any days available for sight fishing now because, you know, it, it's such a visual game. It's hard. 
it's technical, you know, and it's gotten harder because the fish, once again, unfortunately, the striper is going the other way because of overfishing. So uh, I find myself now I have to do run further, try to catch tides and do a lot of different things because the flats themselves have changed. But just the the, the things that a guy sitting in his office that, you know, doesn't see, it's just the beauty of being out there. You know, you just don't know what you're going to run into. You know, all of a sudden you see, you know, I was fishing, I, as an example, I was pulling the the flats of gardeners one day. And as I was coming out of the harbor with the guy, the guy says, you know, I tell him it's not the best flats time right now for stripers because it's August, the water's hot. And, da, da, da. and he says, well, usually, you know, my big thing is I like tarpon. I've, I've fished tarpon. Well, an hour later, we're pulling the, you know, white flat and gardeners. And here comes an 80 pound tarpon down the flat, you know, and, and the guys, I, we sat with that fish. It went back and forth for, I don't know, maybe an hour. I actually, Amanda, you know, was around the corner, whatever I called her and said, you got to come over and look at this, you know, but it was this white long strip and the thing, I, I don't know, he was lost and he went down the strip. He turned around and come back like, well, I recognize white sand, it's, you know, but, but, you know, but every year you see, you know, different things, you know, they catch every year in Sag Harbor, a guy that has a pound net there gets six or seven uh, tarpon every year. Two years ago, the guy in uh, Shinnecock, a netter, got two bonefish. You know, so you know it's it's interesting what you could. You, you never know what you're going to run into. I've had sharks on the flats. I've had, you know, it's just you know that's the beauty of the sight fishing is you know there's always stuff. Do you get the opposite? Would there be a northern species fish that you would find in the Keys and you'd be very surprised? Well, you know, I think most people down here don't expect to see bluefish, but they're here. You know, they're not the size they have in the, you know, up north. But last year I found all these birds and I'm thinking, oh, look at this. You know, and we get into, you know, this is by Key West, you know, and it's like, oh, these got a jacks. And then you start catching bluefish. It's like, you're kidding me. <laughs> so, you know, that's surprising, you know, and, and the striper goes all the way, I think, down to the St. John's River in northern Florida. You know, there's there's a population of them there. So, you know, there's some interesting stuff. But I think fish travel a lot more than than people really think. And you're seeing a lot of it is, you know, I don't know about, you know, with climate change and everything else. Look what's happening. You know, you're seeing a lot of the blackfish move up further north than they've ever been. They're, you know, finding a lot of, you know, different species are changing patterns and, you know, and, and things are changing. So, you know, it's, uh, I think that you find it's like a tarpon that they tag here in the west coast of Florida and they found it 200 or the tag 200 miles from the Titanic, you know, that followed the Gulf Stream up. You know, so, you know, you're, I think that what, what I find really cool is like organizations like, you know, the Bonefish Tarpon Trust and some of the studies that they're doing and what you find out about these fish, you know, that the, the, the travel patterns and how they, you know, they actually are a lot more expansive than we ever thought. It's interesting, you know. The, the Keys, for example, you know, they had a bonefish population that was plummeting after the 2010 freeze, and they couldn't figure it out. But through the research, they've, you know, they found out that they were netting in Cuba, 
you know, and and once they went to, you know, this is another thing the Bonefish Tarpon Trust did is they went and talked to the Cuban government, said you should, you know, you've got this whole industry at your doorstep, you know, you need to quit netting the fish. Did that about six, seven years ago, and now the Keys are starting to see all these small bonefish again, that and the hurricane. You know, the hurricanes blow in all the, you know, that's why you get golf courses down here that have tarpon in them. You know, it's because they get blown in on these hurricanes. You know, last year, I think two years ago was, I think it was Dorian. And uh, and last year, I've never seen so many baby tarpon on the beaches in Key Largo, you know, because of the, the hurricane blows in their little, you know, the little baby, what they call, a, I think it's Lephosopherus or which are like little... Yeah, and they're they're the uh, eels. You know, they look like a clear eel, and so that's why you find the tarpon way back, and you know, and and they find that after hurricanes that it replenishes. You know, same thing with you know the spiny lobster is is not a breeding in Florida. Its its eggs are blown here from the Bahamas and from the Caribbean. You know, the same thing with a lot of the stuff here. You know, it's it's and and they've never found spawning bonefish here. So they think that a lot of it is, you know, that's why the, all these ecosystems are all linked. You know, it's the same thing with up north. If you take the, the Manhattan out of the, the Chesapeake and they got nothing to eat, then, you know, it's just that the, everything's so linked together in all these the ecosystems that God knows what, how you, one can affect the other. So, but that's why it's the science and stuff that you're, you know, the, you know, protecting some of these systems and everything is, is so important now. Do the golf course owners let you fish those ponds in the Keys? You know, there's, there's not, it's not in the keys. There, there's no golf courses in the keys, but in okay. mid Florida, I mean, there is, I mean, there's one over in Key West and everything else, but yeah, there's it one there where we're staying, we're staying in Newtown. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's a few ponds and there's stuff. I mean, right down the street from me, these houses got inundated, but, and there's some lakes back in there that, you know, and that's how these fish get pushed in. It is the same thing with, I used to years ago fish this place that Tim Borsky found, and Tim would say, you know, say, "Okay, I'm going to show you this." So we'd go over, and it wasn't that far from Isla Morada, but it was a, uh, it was like it looked like an island, but in the middle of this island that nobody could see, and Tim found it, I think, on God knows Google Earth was a pond. You know, so we'd take the skiff and then he'd, he'd make sure nobody was there. And he had the these, uh, you know, the mangroves sort of propped up there and he'd pull these mangroves that he had for this entrance. And we'd drag this canoe through and then he'd stick the mangroves in the entrance and we'd walk back into this pond. And the pond had a school of permit. It had uh, redfish. It had what? a sawfish. It had, I mean, it was the most, but it was totally enclosed. And those fish were blown in there years ago by some other storm, you know, because it was landlocked. When I worked with you at Ocean Reef, there was a barracuda that had been washed into the, to the, I guess, pond on the property. And there was a hundred dollars for any kid that could catch it. And kids were coming in every day asking questions about catching this barracuda. They tried hot dogs and clousers and. Nobody could catch it. Yeah, it's it. crazy. It's just, you know, all this, you know, the how these fish get distributed and how, the, you know, everybody, the, you know, 
uh, hurricanes are terrible things, but it's almost nature's way of replenishing and and uh, redistributing, you know, things. It's just, it's interesting how it all works. You you work in two very storm-prone areas. You've got the hurricanes in the Keys, and then you've got Northeasters and hurricanes in New England. How does that change the fishing? Does it take time to recover or can you go well, in there the next season and start catching fish well it, it depends and sometimes it takes you know uh right after i fished the cuda bowl which is a big uh, tournament down in key west started by you know friends of mine you know justin ray and lauren ray and you know the group down here and after the cuda bowl two years ago after the hurricane boy you could really see the damage and the you know structurally and the mangrove damage you know with the you know if they the spray salt will kill the mangroves you know so huge you know dead mangroves and you know, and the palm trees and everything else, but but it actually recovers pretty quickly, and and it, you know, I I almost think in a lot of ways it's a cleansing in a in a way with the you know with the weather the nor'easters up up north or you know they can be tough and we had sandy and there's some you know it's it's not great you know for a guide the weather is your you know nemesis in a in a way but it's also you know, you look at, uh, as I tell the young guides now, it's like weather's your day off. That's why in if, if you're making uh, trying to make a living at this, you know, you can you can say, I want my weekends off and I'm going to do that and everything. But if your weather, you know, is uh, bad three days before the weekend and then the weekend you got off, that's five days. So, the you know, basically as a guide, I, I work, I book every single day and the weather is your days off, you know, at least in, in season, you know. So the weather you're always playing because it can, you know, and you'll see it through the years. It may average out. I look at my old records and everything, but, you know, uh, one year you lose 40 days to weather because all of a sudden for two weeks, it, you know, or whatever the, it's like this year, you know, we're getting cold snaps last year. There was, there was only one little snap in January. That's why last year, the tarpon fishing down here, you know, was insane. You know, it was just, it was great. So the same thing with the permit, you know, early season, you know, the February, March stuff, you know? So, uh, you know, it's just sort of, you got to play the weather as it comes. That's the nature of the, the business, but it can affect it in different ways. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. What's a good weather pattern for you? Well, here, you know, I mean, you want warm and and warm water temperatures and, you know, it's, uh, it, it can turn on when, like after a snap like this and you get a real nice warming trend, you know, where all of a sudden it goes from, you know, like to, I, I'm, it's, the clouds are still going through today, but it's supposed to be down in the forties. So it's going to shock the water and, you know, I'm pretty far south, so it may not be as brutal as it is up in, let's say a hundred miles north in Key Largo and stuff, but 
but it'll uh, it basically drives the fish out. Uh, the guys down here, that's where you spend your time barracuda fishing. You know, basically on these warm-up trends, like yesterday would have been perfect, except the clouds came in. But it had gone from, you know, 70-degree water temperature. You know, this last cold snap wasn't that bad. But, you know, then it goes up to 80. And when you get close to that 77, 78, 80 degrees, then you're tarpon fishing and they, they come in. You know, the permit come back on the flats, the bonefish come back and those and it's and it's good to have that. It's the same thing in the fall. You know, after a hot, hot summer, you, the, the fish aren't on the flats during the day down here in the summer so much because if it's, you know, 100 degrees and the flats are, are registering 100 degrees, you know, on the water temperature or 90, they don't like it. They only come in the early morning and the late evening to maybe feed around. But then when you get into the fall, then your your weather changes and it cools down then the fishing can be really good you know they had some excellent fishing down here in that you know october november stuff september october november their fall you know same thing in the spring you know you go through a cold winter it starts and that weather weather pattern you know it's it, the cold fronts are the same thing it's like a short window of a of a seasonal change. So it gives the fish a chance to come back on the flats as it warms up. They're hungry. They're, you know, they're, they're looking to feed. So oftentimes, you know, you got to put up with the bad weather for a few days, but when it recovers, that's when the fishing is great. So with all this nice weather, how do you protect yourself from the sun and what sunglasses are your preference for spotting fish on the flats? Well, I'm, I'm a, you know, I, I, I put on 50 sunscreen every day in front of a mirror, like it's shaving cream. And so I, so I don't put it around my eyes. I don't put it, you know, I go very lightly in case I sweat above my forehead, but I, I literally, it's on the, it's like, I'm wearing a mask and I'm also wearing a mask, you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying as much as I can. And, and let me tell you, after years of doing this, <laughs> you wouldn't think so, but anyway, so yeah, I, I mean, I'm in front of a mirror applying sunscreen, you know, I don't wait to get on the boat and I don't rub it. I can't get it in your eyes. I see guys, you know, on the boat and they just rub their hands together and lather their face. And then 20 minutes later, like, wow, my eyes are really, you know, so I, that's the main thing with sunscreen. So that's why I do it in front of a mirror religiously. And then my favorite glasses are bar none Costas, you know, they have such a variety of, of sizes, lenses, and, uh, and their technology is so good. You know, the, 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 the polarization process has come, you know, leaps and bounds. And I just love their glasses. It's just, they, they work great. If uh, somebody, all the time I get people, what, you know, I'll see their lenses, you know, on the flats fishing and 99% of my fishing is some sort of sight fishing or so. So I'm wearing a brown or a copper lens. You know, a lot of people show up down here and they'll have a blue or a gray lens and it doesn't, it doesn't show contrast as well. So Costa to me has the most, the widest variety, the best uh, uh, frames and lenses, you know, that you can build any combination. You know, they're, they're, all the sunglasses now are expensive because of process and everything else. But I'm a firm believer in, you know, buy the best that you can afford and hold on to them. 
you know, make sure you got croquis. You're not going to lose them and everything else. But going and buying the Flying Fisherman $15 sunglass is is a waste, you know. So so Costa is the, the you know is is the one that I like because of how you know you can send them back. They're great people. They're doing the right thing for the environment. You know, they've got some great you know, uh, you know, plastic and reclamation and conservation, you know, movements as a company that they've done. So, so, uh, in my book, they're the best. That's what I wear. That's what I'll be wearing when I go to the keys. Well, there you go. See, Rob, (laughs) do you even own winter clothes? Do I own? Yes. Because boy, I'll tell you what, there's nothing worse. I've had a couple of experiences down here where, you know, it's like, holy moly, it got uh, cold and, you know, you find yourself running, you know, and you've got to run up a ways and, you know, now the temperature is down and the, you know, you don't realize it until, you know, you're running in a boat, you know, and it's like, wow, I need my polar fleece. So, uh, so yeah, I always come prepared. And my thing is I didn't go to the, you know, the Somerset fishing show this year. I missed it for the first time since it started. Uh, but I, you know, I had to be in California, but the, uh, you know, I going back and forth between that. I used to fly up with Andy mill, you know, and it's like, dude, I'd look at Andy and it's like, Andy, I hope you brought some besides that flimsy. He's all, I'll be fine. It's like, okay. And then you get up to New York and it's, you know, 10 below and it snowed too. you know, he's like, Oh my God. Yeah. There was a kid from the Bahamas who had never seen snow one year at Somerset. And he was freaking out with all the layers he was wearing. Yeah, it's, it was pretty uh, funny. It's uh, it's a little shocking when you you know you haven't been there. How long does it take for you to get from Long Island to the Keys? Well, where I'm at now, about 27 hours. You know, I do it in two days. I drive 16 the first day, try to get to the border of Georgia or right in Georgia. You know, it's a slog, but I, I time it. The, the whole secret of, uh, of the drive is timing. So I'll leave on a Sunday at midnight and I can get by, let's say I'm coming down and I can get by New York and, and Washington, D.C. and all that traffic stuff that I'll run into. Then it's pretty smooth sailing. But uh, coming back, I'm going to come on the weekends because New York City, I don't care if you're there at five in the morning. If you're during the weekday, you're going to hit traffic. But on the weekends, it's not. So I'll try to hit New York uh, coming back on a on a weekend early morning, and I can usually make it home. But it's it's a slog. But I've been doing it for I don't know twenty five years. So that's you know, how like I met Ralph. Yep, <laughs> he was driving down and stopped in the shop to put out some flyers. Yeah, that's funny. You know, old Ralph, he's running, you know, he contacted me. He was running uh, one of the windmill boats off of uh, off of uh, Montauk where they're putting the windmills there. Oh, wow. And he was he's running one of the exploration boats that's out there doing the work. I could do a podcast just on stories of staying in his apartment with him. Oh, my God. It's the craziest stuff I've ever seen or experienced. Yeah. It was like a reality TV show. We could we could write a book about Ralph. Yeah. yeah, he's an interesting character. Those were some fun days. Uh, do you ever get they starstruck were. with clients? Not really. You know, I've had uh, 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's certain clients that you're excited to fish with because they share the sport, you know, and that's sort of fun, you know, that's the the thing. But you know what it comes down to, Rob, is that I, you know, the age old saying everybody puts their pants on the same way is sort of true, you know, and and uh, and I think that. Once they realize, you know, because I fish with some very high-powered business people too, you know, that are CEO and chairman of corporations that are used to, uh, you know, the, sort of being in control, and so sometimes there's there's that because you know when you got I'm a Type A personality, they're a Type A, I do what, but they recognize that, you know, that y- you are, you know, are good at what you do. You know, and that and that they, you know, they respect that. Like this isn't, you know, I'm I, I may know uh, IBM or whatever the company, but you know, fishing this is the guy. So you you develop these bonds and friendships, and that's to I, I think the the most fun of the of the whole thing is the friendships that I've made and the people over the years, and that's one of the the great uh, great things about the sport is it brings all types together, you know, and I've, you know, it's fabulous fishing, you know, I've gotten to know Jimmy Buffett and, and Roger Waters and, and, uh, you know, all these people that, you know, uh, the heads of corporations and, you know, we're doing this BTT dinner with Tom Brokaw. I've known Tom for 30 years now. And he from stole my, days, my beer when I met him, <laughs> like literally took my beer and took it, put it in his pocket. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> the uh, Tom used to uh, come into Orvis. He would go fishing out west, and uh, and these days he was on the nightly news every night. But he'd come back from fishing in the west, and his brother was out there, and Tom McGuane. They were uh, friends and everything else, and and so Tom would come back, and his brother had made this, um, uh, you know, what they now call granola. You know, and and Tom would you know bring it in, and he'd say, "My brother," and it had cranberries in it, or you know, whatever. All this, he's like, "My brother, I don't know what this is, Paul, but you got it." So, uh, and then he'd come in and talk for you know an hour or something because, you know, I think when he went back to the newsroom, nobody really fly fished, and you know, you know, he he wanted to tell his fishing stories and and still you know relate. But that's how I got to know you know Tom Brokaw really well was that he just used to come in and love to shoot the shit about fly fishing that's very cool yeah so and he remains a a good friend you know he's done helped us a lot he did my first you know btt years ago about 10 years ago that was sort of one of the interesting things at the ocean reef though going back uh you know when i first arrived down there the bonefish tarpon trust in those days was called bonefish tarpon unlimited and they it was all these guys billy pate and Stu apton and uh george hummel and all the people at the ocean reef tried to get together to do something because everything was you know the the, the environment was in trouble and the flats and you know the stuff that was going on so they started this organization to try to put science and, you know, get some stuff so they could, you know, uh, have some ammunition to go fight this, you know, to, to let's find out about these fish and let's find out about this environment. So that's how it started. So the early days, I was a guide. They were just starting the tagging programs and that, you know, that's how I met, uh, you know, the Billy Pates and Stu Apps and, and, you know, all these guys that really, you know, down here at that time were legends, Sandy Moret and, you know, uh, Steve Huff and you know and everybody so 
uh, through that, you know, tagging program and 25 years later now, you know, BTT has learned all this stuff. So they asked me to do this dinner about 10 years ago. And, and, uh, you know, I thought, man, who could I get? You know, I, I don't know. And, you know, it was sort of, and I thought, well, if I can get the entertainment, the dinner would probably, you know, come together. So I went to Tom Brokaw and, and luckily, you know, it was good buddies with lefty and they just started filming Buccaneer and bones, you know? And so they, they'd become friends. And I asked them if they would be willing to do a dinner up in New York city. And they, you know, they said, sure, let's do it. So they put it together. We all put it together. And I got a bunch of friends, uh, you know, from the Anglers Club in New York and from, you know, John Fisher from Urban Angler and Rick Bannero Anglers Club, John Apple and Apple. And we all put this, you know, this thing together. And now, 10 years later, it's their biggest fundraiser. You know, and Tom is doing it to get the Lefty Cray Award this year with, uh, you know, and all the people involved. But it's just and, it, and it's amazing to see how the businessman and, and this has been going on for 100 years that, you know, the business people traveling back and forth to the Keys, you know, so it's sort of the gentleman angler and everything else. You know, they always shared this passion you know, for the sport and everything, but, you know, you couldn't live it. You had to make your living in New York city. And some of these guys have become, you know, heads of the, you know, old customers of mine that, you know, started out at one of the financial firms and is now the chairman, you know, I mean, it's a lot of it, you know, but it's funny how they, they also share that passion and came down to the keys, you know, for eons. So the, now that's the biggest fundraiser for the Bonefish Tarpon Trust is in New York City. Have you ever thought about putting all these stories with people and events, writing a, a book about your time in fly fishing? Yes, I've been asked numerous times. And it might, I'm actually, you know, trying to uh, finish the thing. And when I get off the phone with you, Ian Davis, who's yellow dog fly fishing has been asked to do the bonefish book, which is like Andy's, uh, Tom Pirro's publishing it. It's like Andy's passion for tarpon. And so Ian's doing that. So they asked me to write a chapter, but yes, I've, you know, I, I, weirdly enough, years back, I got asked by Judith Regan, who was a a, uh, you know, big sort of controversial publisher in New York City. She did, I think she was doing the OJ book or something, but she approached me about, but they wanted stories about my clients, you know, oh, tell us the scoop and everything. And I just wasn't into that. I've asked, I've been asked many times for the fishing books, you know, uh, like they do something on stripers, but it, it seemed to me, and you know, everybody tells me I'm wrong, but it's been done so many times. So, you know, it's. Uh, I think that Richard, what's his name? Uh, they, I did a thing for his book, you know, where it wrote on the back cover, you know, which is like the Striper Bible. You know, I forget his name, but uh, but it's like the, the same publisher, Tom Pirro, you know, did Andy's book, and and I think Richard did the one on. Uh, on stripers, but it's like an encyclopedia, you know, it's, you know, so yeah, I, I, you know, the more I think about it, uh, you know, the more I, I want to write something, but you always figure, you know, I'll do that when I, you know, <laughs> when the time arrives <laughs> and there's never time. And all of a sudden here you are. That's fantastic. Yeah, right. So, uh, I'm going to ask you some random questions now so we can. Sure wrap things up a bit do you have any irrational phobias 
No, not that I can think of. You know, uh, it's spiders. No. <laughs> I'm not a big spider fan, but phobias besides not really. Mike's Fakianos showed me that they're scorpions in the keys, and, and I don't like scorpions. Yes. So I told yeah, my wife, no, I... I'm going to bring my, um, my Solarez UV light with me, and then I'm going to use that at night when I'm walking around to light them up because they glow under UV. That's right. What's the strangest thing you found while fishing? Boy, strangest thing I found by fishing. Well, I'll tell you a sort of funny story, though. It's not to say I didn't find it, but, you know, it's, I was. Uh, so one day I'm pulling down the the, the uh, keys and, and I got this client or whatever, and I got a boat behind me and a boat behind him. You know, we're pulling the shoreline, you know, and there's space between us. But, you know, so we're doing this beautiful day and it's up by Elliott Key, which is above the ocean reef. So I'm pulling down and, and we go along and here's this box sitting there, you know, floating in the water and then pulling. And, and the guy says, wow, look at that box there. I wonder what's in that. I said, I don't know. You know, this, you know. he goes, maybe we should check it out. He said, look, we got it. I got guys behind me and I want to find these fish with this tide is right in these little coves, you know? And they said, let's just, just leave it. So we go pulling by. So the guy behind me is Bruce Miller. And so he, same thing, you know, about 20 minutes later, he pulls by this box floating by and keeps on going and everything else. And, and his guy says the same thing. And then the guy behind him, as it comes to turn out, the guy calls Bruce that night and says, hey, Bruce, did you see that box going by? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he said, yeah, we saw it. We decided, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, why? Did you pick it up? He said, yeah. He said, well, what was it, drugs? He said, no, man, it was $25,000 cash. What? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, my God. So anyway, but that's, uh, you know, I've had friends that, you know, I've seen in the Bahamas, I've seen floating bales, waterlogged bales, I've, you know. Square groupers? Yep, square groupers. Apparently, and, uh, I don't remember, but when I was a kid, my grandparents' condo, a, a square grouper washed up. And my parents and all the construction men were climbing down and running to the beach and just filling up hard hats and t-shirts. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, well, guys, you'd have guys in the Keys with new trucks, you know, the the old, you know, the guides and they used to run the shorelines, If especially if they heard that a mothership had gotten busted and they tried to throw stuff over or whatever. But, you know, they'd they'd run the whole shore and, down Biscayne and up and down the Keys looking. Speaking of square grouper, if we stop there to eat, any menu recommendations? Oh, I love their tie bowls. You know, but they're fresh. They're, they're so good. I, I love the square grouper. You know, she does a great job and, and just their food's great. Just go early because it, it's, you know, it's like one of the only places up in that neck of the woods to eat. And it's the best place. So it gets crowded. Okay. She has, the, you know, she's got a tapas bar upstairs or something that's opened up, though. So, uh, you know, so it's. It's really good, though. But, yeah, the, that and I'll tell you the other place, the Cafe Soleil down in uh, Key West is wonderful. The new, uh, what is it, the, uh, God, the something, uh, uh, Thirsty Shrimp, the, uh, uh, what else? Uh, I love Louis' Backyard just for, you know, ambiance. If you want to go for a drink and watch the, you know, the sunset and all that good stuff, Louis is great. Where am I going to so, find the best sandwich down there? 
Boy, that's a good question. Uh, there's a deli on Stock Island. What's it called? Next to Rosoko's or uh, God, I forget the name of the little deli. That's a that's a tough one. I'm even free. I'm up in Sugarloaf, so food is you know deli stuff and everything. You know, baby's coffee has some wraps and stuff, but you know, I mean, I'm uh, you know I try to stay out of the, it's. It's almost like the Hamptons going. The traffic going into Key West, at least for me, if I want to take the boat and go further south in the morning, is not so fun, you know. So, uh, so that's the the downside of where I live is that you're sort of in between things, you know. It's, Key West is great; it's easy to stay out of the fray, but uh, but you got to go there shopping and you got to go, you know, when you need stuff. What's your most played album? My most played album. Imagine some time in the car. You've got some some records to spin. You know, I love the the Eagles. I sort of grew with up with them in uh, you know in California. The Eagles are great. I've uh, God, it's just Elton John. I'd like you know, it's a lot of the you know the classic stuff that you you know love. There's you know, I would say the uh, I love Dire Straits. You know, Mark Knopfler. I think is a, you know. They're all just, uh, you know, especially, you know, if I could think of one thing every time I hear that, if I was going to relate an album to fly fishing, it would be Madman Across the Water. And the reason being is that when I went to Idaho, uh, I worked at the boathouse on this, uh, this uh, you know, this lodge. And it was sat right on Henry's Lake. And I can remember many mornings getting the boat and having that blaring you know, madman across the water as I'm staring across at the Tetons across Henry's Lake. And, and, uh, you know, so as far as fly fishing, that would be the, the album that sort of reminds me of how it all started and, and, uh, what the journey's been. Very cool. Left or right hand retrieve. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. I, I, much to lefty chagrin, I am a left-hand retrieve. Uh, yeah, and here's the reason. I used to get in this argument with lefty all the time, you know, and he used to say, Paul, you've got to use your most dominant hand. And I said, lefty, the problem is my dominant hand is my dominant arm, which is the strongest. So exactly. if I'm going to be pulling on a fish real hard, and I said, and lefty, after you and Ted Jurassic expounded on the the uh, the attributes of a large arbor reel, I would uh, think that I don't have to worry about being the fastest, you know, because of the large arbor. But th- I'm a, a left-hand retriever. I do both, but uh, but it's fighting the fish. You know, I feel more control with my right hand fighting the fish. I don't worry about reeling, you know. So I want to, and I don't want to switch hands after I've cast. You know, I'm stripping, I'm going to do, you know what I'm saying? So I'm going to cast with my right, I'm going to, you know, tip down, strip, strip, strip. I'm going to hook him with the right hand, I'm going to reel with the left because I can fight harder with my right hand, right arm. Nice. Who's your favorite James Bond? Well, I have to say this. Okay, so Roger Moore. And the reason being is that uh, the way that I met my wife in London I was I was actually there from with a bank. I was 30 years old, and I met the guy that was the lawyer for Cubby Broccoli. And Cubby Broccoli was the Robert producer R. of all the, the James Bond films. 
And so we became, his name was Abba Schwartz, and he was the lawyer for Cubby, and, and we became friends. And he invited me to the premiere of Octopussy. And the one condition was that I take this girl that he had promised her father he would look over her, and that ended up being my wife. And what? we went to the... We went to the premiere of Octopussy, uh, which is like going to the Academy Awards in London. And that's how I met her, was on a blind date with Roger Moore. And Abba Schwartz was in the movie with Roger. We met Roger Moore. And uh, and that was the evening. Prince Charles was there. That's actually what we went over for, was that it was an event for Prince Charles and Diane. Maybe and, that'll uh, be on the next season of The Crown. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, they Prince Charles' favorite charity at the time was trying, it was called United World College, and he was trying to put Palestinian kids together with Jewish kids in a school so that they would learn to, uh, you know, be with each other. And that's why I went there. I was single and 30 years old, and I was invited by the bank that I did business with. And so, uh, and that's how I met my wife. That was at the premiere of Octopussy. That's remarkable, and I don't think I can ask any more questions. <laughs> Where That's can people fun. find you in the Keys and on Montauk and online, social media? Well, my, the, the flyfishingmontauk.com is my site, and, you know, uh, Captain Paul Dixon at mac.com. Fantastic. All right, Paul, well, thank you so much, and I will be sending you an email with some, some Keys questions. Great. All right, Rob. We look forward to seeing you if you make it down here. Yeah. When do you head back up north? I am up there this year. I got a mothership after I leave here, so I'll be back there June first. All right, maybe we'll we'll buy you a couple rounds in the Keys. That sounds like a plan, man. All right, we're driving, right, so I can bring the booze with me. All right, All right. You thank you so care, much for man. your time. Cheers. All right, bye. Cheers, bye. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight, Western. A mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.